Thank you for joining this sermon podcast from Cornerstone Fellowship in Forest City, North Carolina. We hope that you are blessed and encouraged by today's message. Cornerstone exists to glorify God as we passionately pursue Him and make Him known through worship, discipleship, fellowship, and outreach. Here's today's message. Today we're going to take a look at a passage of Scripture from Genesis chapter 3. We'll begin in verse 8. Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. You know the story quite well. Adam and Eve have sinned by this point. And it says, And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave me to or gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. And the Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all beasts of the field, and on your belly you shall go, and dust shall you eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children and your desire shall be contrary. This is an interesting Translation from the ESV, that's what I'm reading from today, but there is a preposition there that can be translated against or up against or to. So it makes better sense this way. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. And by the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. And then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and live forever. Therefore, God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. And then finally, he drove out the man. And at the east end of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim, that's plural, and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Thirty-eight years ago to this very day, President Ronald Reagan in 1984 issued a presidential proclamation designating the third Sunday of January, or as close as it could possibly be, as National Sanctity of Human Life Day. And today I want us to take a 
look at, well, sin in particular and abortion indirectly. And you'll understand more, I think, as we go along. I came across an article. I want to start by reading parts of it to you. I think it will help us. The title of the article, and by the way, the article was written uh, to, as, as an article in Salon.com, uh, certainly not a magazine I read very often, but uh, Votiv Ockham quoted this article, and I went and found it, and I want to read uh, actually more of it than he did, but the title of the article, it was written by Mary Beth Williams, and the title of it is, So What If Abortion Ends Life? And she said, I believe that life starts at conception. This is the subtitle. I believe that life starts at conception, and it's never stopped me from being pro-choice. I want you to listen carefully to what she says. This was in 2013 that she wrote this. Of all the diabolical, clever moves the anti-choice lobby has ever pulled, surely one of the greatest has been its consistent co-opting of the word life. Life? Who wants to argue with that? Who wants to be the, on the side of not life? That's why the language of those who support abortion has for so long been carefully couched in other terms while opponents of abortion eagerly described themselves as pro-life. The rest of us had to scramble around with not nearly as big-ticket words like choice and reproductive freedom. The life conversation is often too thorny to even broach. Yet I know that throughout my own pregnancies, I never wavered for a moment in the belief that I was carrying a human life inside of me. I believe that's what a fetus is, a human life, and that doesn't make me one iota less pro-choice. Here's the complicated reality, she says, in which we live. All life is not equal. That's a difficult thing, she says, for liberals like me to talk about, lest we wind up looking like death panel-loving, kill-your-grandma and your precious baby stormtroopers. Yet a fetus can be a human life without having the same rights as the woman in whose body it resides. She's the boss. Her life and this next line, I would say, is a summation of all progressive thought in so many areas. Her life and what is right for her. What is right for her circumstances and her health should automatically trump the rights of the non-autonomous entity inside of her. Always. When we on the pro-choice side get cautious or cagey around the life question, it makes us illogical and contradictory. She said, I have friends who have referred to their abortions in terms of scraping out a bunch of cells, and then a few years later, they were all excited over the pregnancies that they unhesitatingly described in terms of the baby or this kid. I know women who have been relieved at their abortions and grieved over their miscarriages. Why can't we agree that how they felt about their pregnancy, pregnancies was vastly different, but that it's pretty silly to pretend that what was growing inside of them wasn't the same thing. Fetuses aren't selective like that. They don't qualify as human life only because they're intended to be born. When we try to act like a pregnancy doesn't involve human life, we wind up drawing stupid semantic lines in the sand. First trimester abortion versus second trimester versus late term, dancing around the issue, trying to decide if there is a magic moment when a fetus becomes a person. Are you only human when you're born? Only when you're viable outside the womb? Are you less 
of a human life when you look like a tadpole than when you can suck on your thumb. She says again, now she's speaking from the pro-choice camp. We're so intimidated by the wing nuts. We get so spooked out of having these conversations and we let the arch conservatives browbeat us with the concept of life. Using their scare tactics on women and pushing for the indefensible violations of forced ultrasounds, she says, because when they waved the not even accurate notion, I'm not sure where she gets that, that abortion stops a beating heart, they think they're going to trick us into some kind of damning admission. They believe that if we call a fetus a life, they can go down the road of making abortion murder, and that's what concerns the blank out of those of us who support unrestricted reproductive freedom. She said in the final paragraph, the majority of women who have abortions, and she says, and one in three American women will, they are already mothers. And I can say anecdotally that I'm a mom who loved the life she incubated from the moment that she took the pregnancy test. I'm cleaning that up. And is also now well over 40 and in an experimental drug trial. But if by some random fluke I learned today that I was pregnant, you bet you're blank, I'd have an abortion. I'd have the world's greatest abortion. Finally, she says, and I would put the life of a mother over the life of a fetus every single time. Even if I need to acknowledge my conviction yet that, yes, the fetus is indeed a human life. She says, but it is a life worth sacrificing. Now, I can tell you that's diabolical. And I can tell you that it is shocking somewhat. And I would add other words like deplorable, but I also would have to say it's honest and it's very confessional. And, and, and I can tell you uh, it helped me with something. It helped me personally to understand that all the verbal jousting and wrestling we do with all the terminology and the memes we share on Facebook and the ingenious, clever retorts we have trying to prove to people that it really is uh, uh, alive and it really is a human. And of course, we always knew that. Everybody knows that. What are we arguing about? We know better. If, if it's not alive, guess what? You don't need an abortion. And if it's not human and it's alive, you need something more serious than an abortion. It is human, and it is a human life. And we all know that. She helps us as, as, as ungodly as she is, as staunch as she is, as, as convicted as she is about it is a human life, and I don't care, and I'm just telling you that you have to make some decisions and have some priorities and all of that. I can tell you, she has helped me to understand that continuing to mud-wrestle with these people is a waste of time. It's a waste of time. You can show all the little hands reaching out to the stomach and the feet pushing out. You can do all of that you want to do, but... I can tell you, I, I'll just speak for me. Perhaps your testimony is different. I'd love to hear it. I hope so. But I have to tell you, mine's kind of sad because I've been doing this 40-something years, and I honestly, honestly, and I thought about it a lot this week, I cannot tell you one single person that I have ever changed their mind on this issue in 42 years. It just doesn't happen. And, and I think for us it's because you and I as children of God, and that's to whom I preach this morning, 
That's who I believe God is speaking to. We have to remember what Paul said to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 2, 2. He said, I didn't come to you with words of wisdom. I didn't have some really cool memes I found on a pro-life website. I didn't send those on ahead. I didn't have scientific proof, which we do, but none of that mattered. He said, but I determined to know nothing except Christ and Christ crucified so that you and your faith would rest not on man's wisdom but on God's power. You see, I have to understand, and, and maybe you're thinking, well, it sounds like you're preaching to you. That's a great place to start. I need it worse than anybody. But I personally have to understand that the only power out there that could change people is going to be God's power. Now, how does that power come about? Well, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because he said, it is the power of God unto salvation. So instead of trying to get people to not be pro-choice, our goal, our only shot at all, our, our calling from God from the very get-go is not to get them to, to, to be pro-life, but to get them to know personally the giver of life and to have their life changed and let them have life first and let them experience what kind of life they can have in Christ. The gospel is the answer because the problem is sin. It's not, it, it may be a political issue. It, you could attach all kinds of complications to it. And, and I hear people tell me sometimes that, that they go to church. I mean, what are you going to do? If you go to church and you're pro-choice, I, boy, I, I don't know how you defend that. You, you actually won't be able to. It's just, it's just how it is. It's just not going to happen. But I can tell you, the only way to change people's lives is for them to meet Jesus Christ. And that's what God called us to do. My wrestling with these people has not worked. Maybe I'm just a terrible wrestler. But I'll bet you if I ask you how many of you have changed a bunch of people's lives, how many of you came up with some kind of photo of a child and, and, and proved that they felt pain at this age or there was a heartbeat at, at this level of development or whatever, how many of you can say, boy, I had five guys at work, they all went, whoa, man, I'm, whew, I'm different. I see it now. It, it, it never happens like that. Think of all of the things that people used to question that archaeology, uh, concerning the Bible, that archaeology comes along and proves that, well, you were wrong about that. Do they go, yeah, I feel stupid. I'm going to church Sunday. No, they just go on to something else. It's never going to change them. This is an issue of sin and the fallenness of man. So I want us to take a look this morning at a biblical worldview of sin and salvation. And we'll talk some more about abortion, but man, usually this time of year, boy, I'm, I'm on my game. I've got more arguments about why we need to be pro-life, and I got statistics, and man, I, I, I just, boy, they're, they're all ready to go, but I realize I've approached this thing wrong for a long time. God gave me a measure of peace this week in the midst of, of a burden to preach His Word, and, and I just want to share it with you a worldview of sin and salvation. First of all, we need to talk about our defiance. This will help us understand why people write articles like this lady did. Our defiance, in verse 17, God said, 
you have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. That's not a question. That's not a question. As a matter of fact, I can just imagine now a modern response to God would be, well, yes, God, we viewed your word to us through the lens of our personal experience and feelings, and, and, and we feel completed now that we have embraced our individualism. God would have to remind them, perhaps, I didn't ask you why. You're answering questions I don't care about. I didn't ask you why you did it. Eve's response, though, in blaming others, and then Adam's response in blaming others, and the serpent never got a chance to, it at least proved that in the garden they knew they had done something wrong. People nowadays don't need to blame anybody. They embrace their own truth. They embrace their own ideas. It's how I feel about it. That's more important than anything that God has to say. It's really kind of sad. And as far as asking why, I love the way when God came in the garden, he said, Eve, what is this you have done? Adam, where are you? Well, the reason, I, now I, I don't care about that. You notice God, God didn't even respond to any of their excuses. And when he got to the serpent, he never even asked him any questions. He just said, here's what's going to happen to you. God never asked why. Never asked why. He knew why. He was concerned with what they had done. Our defiance, man, we can be so defiant in our sinfulness. That's why today that when it comes, even no matter how many times you tell people, just look at it, uh, what, two, three weeks ago, now we had a vote in the House of Representatives to offer medical assistance to children to, to make sure that they would have, to make a policy that you must offer medical assistance to a child that survives an abortion. And 210 Democrats all voted against it. Yeah, I know. If I'm going to make you mad, might as well go ahead and do it now and beat the Christmas rush. I don't care. I'm just telling you that's what happened. And it won't make it out of the Senate. 220 others voted for it. I doubt it'll ever make it to a vote in the Senate, and then it'll be on the president's desk, and he'll have to sign it. Yeah, we need a miracle. Our defiance. Secondly, our demise. Boy, this is so important. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now stay with me. First of all, the enmity part is not just passive aggressiveness. It is an intentional hostility. He says that from now on, there will be those who will follow after the seed of the serpent, and there will be those who, have to fo who follow after the seed of God. And he says, I'm going to make a clear distinction. There won't be any blurred lines because I am going to put, he says, it's not naturally occurring. I'm going to make it happen. I am going to put a constant tension. I want there to be constant hatred between those two seeds. I don't want them to ever look alike. I don't want it to ever be something that you could kind of come up with some excuse about and straddle the fence. He says you can't straddle this fence. He is defining what his kingdom versus the kingdom of the world is like, and he's doing it all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. He wants no confusion about it at all. He said, I had a covenant with Adam, and Adam blew it. He says, I am now taking that covenant and putting it in the hands of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. And the New Testament even calls him the second Adam because he's the one that's going to do so much that the first one could never do. 
Well, man, think about this. Now God's going to come into the world. He could have come into the world any way he chose. But what did he choose? He chose to come through conception, through childbirth, through nine months of pregnancy, being born, living, suffering, dying, overcoming death through the resurrection. That's how he chose to come into this world. That's why conception, pregnancy in human beings is sacred to God. He endured every bit of it. He so-called sanctified that for us. But, boy, I can tell you, we're going to go back, and I want you to just stay with me now. The seed of the serpent and the seed of Eve. Man, have they ever had a battle. Uh, by the way, I'll just say this uh, quickly so you don't get confused. There's a thing called serpent seeds theology. That's heretical teaching and uh, has no place whatsoever in orthodoxy. What we're talking about here is they, they would say that, well, Cain, his father was the serpent because the serpent had sex with Eve or whatever. That's not true. It says Adam knew his wife Eve, and she brought forth a son and called him Cain. Is there any confusion about that? I didn't think so. But some would follow after Cain. Cain was the firstborn. He would have been in the line with Jesus Christ. But no, he chose to be wicked and, and live a life in rebellion to God. Even after God warned him, he still decided to do it. So Abel was in line. But hey, the seed of the serpent kills Abel through Cain. It, it, Cain is a wicked man, and he kills Abel. So in Genesis 4.25, it says that Adam had relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has appointed me another offspring. Zehrah is the word there for offspring, and in the Hebrew, it means seed. He's replaced him with a boy named Seth. So the seed goes on. As a matter of fact, 1 John 3, 12, way over in the New Testament, says we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Now we're picking teams, and the war has begun. If we move on to chapter 12 in Genesis, you have a guy named Abraham and he's going to marry a woman who can't have children. Now we're in a bind. She can't have children, and God doesn't seem to be in a hurry about fixing it because she doesn't get pregnant until she is 90 years old. I'll give you a minute. 90 years old. And, of course, Abraham starts working his own plan, which was against the will of God. Always is when we try to do that. God had a plan. He allowed her to have a child, and his name was Isaac. Then Isaac brings, carries the seed on, and he's got two sons, Jacob and Esau. Now, Esau is born first, but I'll just tell you, it's more about God's election than it is about birth order. It winds up going to Jacob because Esau is a, he's an idiot. That's not a Hebrew word. He is an idiot, self-seeking. All he cares about is fixing whatever need I have right now, some of why we have this going on. I just want to fix this problem, and, and, and yeah, I'll, I'll say you my birthright. I'm starving to death. I'm going to die if I don't get something to eat, and and, and that's the way he thought, and he was wicked in the sight of God. And later on, God will say, Jacob, I have love, but Esau, I have hated. So the seed goes on through Jacob. Now, Jacob, he meets a gal named Rachel. And man, the Bible says she was beautiful. Beautiful. It says, this, this puzzles me a little, 
She had a sister named Leah, an older sister, and says she was kind of weak in the eyes. I, I think that's Laban's way of saying, I got one daughter that's beautiful, and I got one that's cosmetically challenged. Is, is that correct enough? She's a little weak on the eyes. <laughs> Well, you know the story. Jacob worked seven years. I don't know what kind of party they had before the wedding, but he spent the whole night with the wrong woman. Man. Laban, his father-in-law, tricked him and gave him Leah instead of Rachel. Of course, you know how Jacob was. He never forgot stuff like that. And if you want to swindle a swindler, you do it at your own peril. Because finally, when Jacob leaves Laban, he not only takes both girls, he takes everything else that man has. But he winds up being married to Leah. He has to work seven more years to get Rachel. But hey, Rachel is also barren. But Leah's not. And she has for him Reuben. Another son named Simeon, a fourth son, our third son named Levi, and then she has Judah. And Judah is carrying on the seed. You see all these challenges that has come along as the seed of God and, and the seed of Satan just fight constantly good and evil, right and wrong, God's kingdom and, and the world's kingdom, that struggle that started so long ago. So Judah has three sons, Ir, Onan, and Shelah. He goes and gets Ir, the oldest one. He gets him a wife named Tamar, and he is wicked and God kills him. He goes to Onan, says, you need to marry your brother's sister uh, or your brother's wife because he's dead and you need to bear sons for your brother. Well, Onan didn't want to do that. said he spilt his seed on the ground and God killed him. Well, there's only one left. And Judas says, he's so young, I don't want to see him die too. He says, Tamar, you go back home to your mom and dad and stay there. And that sounds like that's going to be the end of it. But I don't know how exactly. But Tamar knew that, no, this is important. There has to be a seed to go on. And so you remember the story. It's a crazy one. But she dressed up like a harlot. She knew it was sheep shearing time. She waited on the side of the road. She knew that Judah would come by, and he did. And he thought she was a good-looking prostitute. And so he went into her. He said, look, I don't, I'll paraphrase, but he really said this. I, I, I don't have my checkbook with me. She said, that's fine, I do credit. She says, but you got to leave me something as a guarantee. So he left her his ring, his cord that he wore, and his staff. Well, he said, I'll send payment. He must have had good credit because afterwards he did send payment by his servant. But then his servant said, I couldn't find anybody out there. There was no one. Okay. Three months later, somebody comes to Judah and says, hey, your daughter-in-law has played the harlot and she's three months pregnant. Judah says, man, never did trust her. Bring her out here and let's burn her alive. And we're going to burn her and the baby. I mean, the baby's not going to survive this, but who cares? I'm a wicked man and I got a problem. And I need to get rid of it. And if somebody needs to die to get rid of it, then this is what we'll do. She says, I'll paraphrase again. Before you stoke up the flames, I got a few items here that belong to one of you. Here's a ring, a gold cord, and a staff. And the man that owns these is the father of this baby. Man, I don't think egg on your face will even cover that. Judah was shamed by that. And he knew it. And he confessed that he had been wicked in the sight of the God because of that. So she was able to live. And she not only had a child, she had two. 
She had a boy named Zira and a boy named Perez. And Zira stuck his arm out first to be born, and the maiden tied a scarlet string around his hand, and he pulled his hand back in, and Perez came around him in the passing lane, and he was born first. And Perez would carry on the seed through her, Rez, Ram, Aminadab, and Nashon, and then Salmon, who had been married to Rahab the harlot, and they would have a son named Boaz. But that's neither here nor there because the seed's going to come through Elimelech. But Elimelech, as you remember, he had two sons, Malon and Kilion. Are you still with me? Had Malon and Kilion. You know the story. It's the book of Ruth. And his wife was Naomi. And the seed would come from their family, but he disobeyed God because he left Bethlehem, the place called the house of bread, to go to Moab because things were so hard to come by in Bethlehem. He should have trusted God. God never wanted any of his people to go to Moab, but that's where they went. Elimelech died. Malon died, Kilion died, Naomi's left alive with two daughters-in-laws, Orpah and Ruth, but she is too old to have kids. Now, we've seen God already overcome that, but God's got a different plan this time. Ruth goes home with her. She meets Boaz. Boaz takes care of things. On Elimelech's side of the family, he is able to acquire the rights to marry Ruth, and they are married, and they have a son named Obed, and he has a son named Jesse, and Jesse has a son named David, and David has a son named Solomon, and Solomon has a son named Rehoboam. You, you get where I'm going. Years later, from that same bloodline, after all of that warring, an angel comes to Mary and says, you're pregnant. But you have been preg impregnated by the Holy Spirit of God. And the child that is in you is going to be the Savior of the world. I thought about this question. wonder when in her pregnancy he became Jesus. First trimester, second, when he had a beating heart, when he took his first breath, no. you know when he became Jesus, same time I became Michael Snowgrove, same time you became a human being, there's no argument about it. Stay with me. And then there's the final battle. Jesus comes to this earth. He's hated and all of that. And they kill him. He suffers. He dies. But then he rises from the dead. Hallelujah. And ascends back to the Father. And but still we got some undone business, unfinished business so let me just read you a passage. Stay with me now in Revelation chapter 12. It says, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars, and she was with child. And she cried out, being in labor and in pain. We know where she got that from. To give birth. And then another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems, and his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw him to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that she could uh, live there and be nourished for 1,260 days. And then there was a war in heaven. 
Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough. And there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. Who is this? Well, the serpent of old. God finally gets around to taking care of him. The serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan. I don't know how we could get that confused. Who deceives the whole world. He deceived Adam. He deceived Eve. He deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before God day and night. The seed of God not only has survived, but one day will triumph completely. What a war, man. What a battle. Number three, and we'll look at these last two points quickly. Our defiance, our demise, our deception. This happens with sin. It says, cursed is the ground, verse 17, because of you in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles and sweat and all of that. You know, that's a long ways from being like God. He was promised a few verses earlier that you'll be like God. <laughs> he went from a promise to be like God to crawling around eating dust and digging in the thorns and briars trying to make a living. I'd say he was truly deceived. But so are we. Whether it's somebody that is pregnant and is trying to figure out what to do and Gosh, my prayers are with you. I know there are circumstances that I could never understand. I got all of that. But no matter how many times I tell you that I understand, boy, there are situations that are going to be difficult. Let me tell you, abortion is a biblical worldview issue. It is a right or wrong issue that has been determined by God. So yeah, there could be lots of different difficulties and things. It's so easy, though, to be deceived and just think, well, I, I, I'm, I'm just not ready. I'll get rid of this, and I'll go on, and, and I'll be fine. Man, I can't tell you how many. I, I know I've never converted anybody from pro-choice, but, boy, I can sure tell you I've had a lot of ladies in the last 40-something years, sit down and talk to me about I made a decision a long time ago. I'd give anything if I could go back and redo. And I'm so blessed to be able to tell them God loves them and cares for them. I know maybe for some of you sitting in here today in a crowd this size, I'm sure some of you have experienced this. You've gone through it. There's it, no doubt about it. But let me just say to you that God forgives and God helps you to heal and that he loves you. And yeah, I know, I know I'm preaching up here like, boy, I'm just, just giving it a hard time today. But, but I, I got to tell you, uh, even with all of that, I understand in my heart, either today or Mother's Day, one of the two is probably the worst day you ever have at church. You just had rather be somewhere else. People celebrating children. Here we are today talking about something you walked through. You know I can't understand it. You know I don't know what you were feeling like. You, don't, you know I have no clue as to what led you to that decision. But I do know this. After it was all said and done, a lot of you feel deceived that it would make things better. It made things anything but. Last of all, as I close today, our deliverance. 
Verse 21 says, And the Lord made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. And then in verse 24 it says, He drove out the man at the east of the garden of Eden, and he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. He didn't want Adam to be able to eat from the tree of life and live eternally in that fallen state. So he forbid him to come in there. As a matter of fact, verse, the last verse of this, this chapter, verse 24, totally excludes Adam because salvation is all God's business. Adam's not going to help him. Adam can't sneak back into the garden and make things right. He can't crawl around and slip over there and get a hold of the tree of life so he can live forever in a state like God never intended for him to live in. No, salvation is absolutely 100% in the hands of God. And God is the one. God is the one that can give you rest and peace. So I'm going to say this today, and I, I, I know it's a strong statement, but I didn't write it. You, you know, I, I know we're up against hard hearts. I, there may be some of you here today that you were pro-choice when you got here, and you're going to be pro-choice when you leave. Maybe the only thing you've added to your feelings is anger at me. Too bad. This is a sin issue. That's what this is. We say, oh, it's complicated, it's political, it's whatever. It's a sin issue. And, and I can just tell you, I know we're coming up again. I mean, you may be looking at me now thinking, Pastor, I'm with you. But people aren't going to listen to that nowadays. They have really hard hearts. One of the things that God brought me some peace about this week, he helped me to see that God and I work in two different departments. I'm in advertisement. He's in sales. I just tell you the truth. It's between you and God what you do. I have no more cute memes for Facebook. I figured it out finally, convincing you that it really is a human life didn't make any difference. I remember years ago I got, I used to stay depressed all the time about people not coming to church regularly. And I had a friend at the time that loved me enough to help me. He said, you know, Pastor, he said, you have put the ball on the tee, put the tee in the ground, and put the club in their hand. He said, what you forgot to ask was, do they even want to play golf? I've had to learn. It's not going to matter what I post. Man, Miss Janice, that post you had this week touched my heart. But I, I know Christ is my Savior, and I know I'm a sinner, and I, I already know how he feels about life, and I know how sacred it is to anything. Just think about it. What if we had a tree? What if we had a tree somewhere called whatever, a Mago Dei? We'll call it that. Some of you know what that means. The image of God. What if we had an Imago Dei, and we said this tree represents the image of God. Man, we would never cut that down. That tree would be, boy, it'd be protected by, I don't know, the, you, we wouldn't let a spotted owl put a nest in that thing. I'll tell you what bears the image of God. It's when those two little cells come together and a brand new human being brand new human being begins its life in the physical realm at that second. That bears the image of God. And it's sacred. It's sacred. 
Let's pray. I ask you, God, to help us. I ask you, Lord, to do what we cannot do. I pray, Father, you'd help us to be faithful. Faithful, God. To stand for what is right. To save every life we can. Lord, to adopt, to, to love, to intervene, to do whatever we can do, God. But I pray, Father, that you would help us to know that it will take your power to transform lives. Help us, God, to realize and know that they need the gospel, God. They don't need to lose an argument. They don't need for us to overwhelm them, Lord, with, with reality and scientific data, God. They need to come to know you. And I pray, God, you speak to hearts today. And if people are still... Lord, wishy-washy on this issue. I pray, God, that they would look in their heart and, and ask you, Father, do they have a relationship with you? Do they understand what that means, God? Help us, Lord, to preach the gospel. And I pray, God, that gospel would change lives. And Lord, please help us. Help people like me, God. Help us, God, that just... We live in passion all the time, it seems. Stay awake at night thinking about these things, God. We've terrorized ourselves. I pray, Father, that you would help us to see, Lord, that we're never going to change people. Only you can do that. So, Lord, I pray you'd help us to keep preaching your word to realize and know, God, it's going to take your power and help us to depend upon that. Lord, help us to have a peace about sharing the gospel, giving people, Lord, the opportunity to have a relationship with you. And if they don't, Lord, help us to know at that point there's nothing we can do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. If you have any questions or would like to know more about Cornerstone, please visit our website at servantsway.com or email us at office at servantsway.com. Cornerstone Fellowship is located at 1186 Hudlow Road, Forest City, North Carolina. Please join us again next week.